You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. This is a special episode of the Hashtag FemSquire series, where I interview women attorneys and law firm owners about their career path and their experience as an entrepreneur, including why they became a lawyer, how their practice has evolved, their biggest challenges and successes as both attorneys and business owners, and their vision for the future. They share their philosophies about business and life. Don't reinvent the wheel. Whatever you're going through, these ladies have been there and done that already. Learn from their mistakes and from their successes. Find out what works for them and what didn't. And you'll find that their inspiration, motivation, and challenges are probably very similar to your own. Whatever you're experiencing, you're not alone. I hope you enjoy these ladies' stories. I'm Christina Previtt, your host, and you are listening to Wake Up Call. My guest today is hashtag femsquire Kim Shazinski. She is a divorce lawyer by trade and the owner of ADR Law in Garden City, New York. Thank you for joining me today, Kim. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I can't wait to get into your story because it looks like you're doing something a little more creative with divorce law than the traditional litigation model, but we will get to that. My first question of my guests is always, where did you go to college and what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Ah, I went to Hofstra University and I always knew I was going to be an attorney. I can remember the day in sixth grade, my social studies class, our teacher had us do a debate and split the class up in two and we debated. And I absolutely fell in love with arguing. (laughs) And I knew I was going to be a lawyer right then and there. And I can remember at that really young age being absolutely fascinated by the power, like I could change someone's mind with my words and I could convince somebody to believe something they didn't believe or, or just change their mind with the power of my words. And from that day forward, I went home from school that day and said, mom, I'm going to be a lawyer and I never wanted to be anything else. Your mom probably wasn't surprised though. Not at all. <laughs> my mom always said, I knew you were going to be a lawyer because you always love to argue. Were there any lawyers in your family? No, I come from a family of police officers. Oh. (laughs) I thought that I wanted to be um, the next Nassau County DA, um, which is what I went to law school for. I interned in that that office uh, summer between college and law school, and I loved it. And coming from the law enforcement family was just the natural fit for me. And then the second year in law school, when it was time to interview for your first clerkship. My first interview was with a matrimonial firm. And uh, divorce law was the one thing I was pretty positive I never wanted to do. So I decided- Do I have to ask why? (laughs) (laughs) So I went on the interview for interviewing practice. And after sitting with um, the senior partners for three hours, they hired me on the spot. And being all of 22 years old and not knowing how to handle myself, I accepted the job on the spot. (laughs) And here I sit 30 years later, a divorce attorney. That's how that happened. (laughs) Maybe it was just meant to be. I think it was. I think um, at heart, I'm a frustrated psychologist. And this is a real natural fit for for my personality. But did you feel like you were leaving the DA aspirations behind? Well, no, when I took the, um, the internship, in my mind, it was just going to be just that. And I would then go on to the DA's office after I graduated. But I was there for two years. And after I spent two years there, graduated law school, I realized that I loved it. And uh, there went the, the aspiration of the DA's office. So you graduated from, from college, you graduated from Hofstra, and then where did you go to law school? Hofstra. Okay, so you're a Hofstra girl. <laughs> I'm a Hofstra girl. 
And when you did finally segue into divorce, what was it about divorce that you liked? I liked, well, first of all, I'm a problem solver by nature. It is, it is who I am. I'm always going to find a solution. I like people, I like helping people um, work out their differences. And I liked the direct client contact. That was the ability to roll my sleeves up and really get involved on a very personal level and help people work out their differences. I loved it. I think when I went into divorce law, there's sort of this joke in the legal community, I'm sure you've heard, is that it picks you. You don't pick it, which kind of mm-hmm. sounds like what happened to you too. <laughs> um, but I remember what I liked was the part of it that was sort of like a financial transaction and figuring out money and finances and like you said, problem solving, but it escaped me at a young age that really divorce is probably 95% psychological. So as a 22 year old, we don't have a lot of life experience at 22. Most of us, right? Mm -hmm. How did you, how were you really prepared to deal with that at the age of 22? Did you really know what you were getting yourself into? Of course not, but I thought I did. <laughs> yes, at 22, right? Yeah. The financial aspect was actually my least favorite part of it. I liked sitting and talking with someone and helping them, particularly women. I was always very, very, and still am, enthralled with helping a woman find her voice, find her power, pick herself up, and do what she needs to do to carry on and be a, an independent person. I love that. So what kind of family background do you have? Are, are there divorced families in your family? No. Um, I have been, I am divorced. I come from a, <laughs> a family, I'm half Italian and half Polish. And my parent, my mom's Italian, my dad's Polish. My parents have been together since they were 14 years old. Wow. They have, they have the most amazing marriage I have ever witnessed in my life. They... Um, are still madly in love with each other. They hold hands. They are best friends. They do everything together. They are inseparable. And That's they've so been nice. married. Yeah, it's really wonderful. They've been together 60, over 60 years. It's amazing. You, you probably get this question a lot because I get this question a lot. Is do, Are you soured on marriage because of your experience as a divorce lawyer? Absolutely not. And I'm divorced. Yes. And I'm not soured on marriage at all. Because my parents have set such an amazing example and have, have shown me and my siblings how beautiful a true partnership can be, I, I wish I had had that. And I could, would never sour on the idea of marriage. So when you were a young associate, when did you start having aspirations of maybe having your own firm? Or did you think you were a lifer at, at the firm you were at? Oh, no. On day one, it was, when am I going to have my own? When do I get to do this on my own? Um, I have a really strong entrepreneurial spirit. And um, I like to be my own boss. And I, let's see, I guess, I think I was practicing eight years. I was a partner in a firm. And after I had my second child, I realized that um, I needed a little more control of my life. And it was time jump ship and I started my own firm. Um, and I was I practiced for three or four years. The you know the exact timing escapes me. And um, when I had my third child, I decided to stay home. So this is actually my second time around practicing law. I practiced for 10 years. I was home for about 10 years and now I'm back. Wow, that's a pretty big gap. Yeah. Yeah, it was something else, let me tell you. <laughs> Did you have any reservations about leaving law oh, or leaving work? Absolutely. Leaving work more than leaving law. Um, it was a very scary... Uh, my former husband traveled a lot, and it just became a reality that he wasn't here, I wasn't here. Someone had to raise our children, and I wanted to be the person to do that. And, um, you know, the whole the nannies and the living nice, it, it wasn't a good fit for my personality. So I decided to pack it in for 10 years. But being home um, exclusively was not, was not easy for me. Um, I, I had a lot of energy and a lot of ambition. So I went back to school. 
um, at night and um, for a certificate program in philanthropy. And I ran a local nonprofit for 10 years. And that, that, got the, that kept the juices flowing. You know, it was still an opportunity to, to run something and contribute. And um, I did that while I was raising the kids for 10 years. It was great. So you really were working in a sense. I was. It was volunteer, but I, I was working. Um, and, and I really enjoyed it. Did you feel the pull to go back to law? Because 10 years is really a long time. It's Did you miss it? Time. Did you miss law? I didn't miss law. I missed building a business. I missed um, being a part of a professional community. And I was able to satisfy some of that lacking with doing the nonprofit stuff. Um, but I thought <laughs> that I was that nonprofit was going to be a second career for me. And when my, my plan was, you know what they say about people who plan. Yeah. <laughs> um, my plan was that when I returned, I would go back to nonprofit work. But as it turns out, I went through my own divorce and being a single mom with three, uh, three daughters, um, at three little girls at home was philanthropy and fundraising was not conducive to being a single mom. I couldn't go to night events. I couldn't, yeah, I just couldn't. The hours weren't. And the pay wasn't conducive. So I yeah. went back to practicing law. But I went back with a completely different attitude towards it. Um, I think, not I think, I know, be becoming a mother um, and going through my own divorce, it made me realize that this is not something that needs to be adversarial. And the way we do it in our culture, I believe, is just wrong. Um, it's a restructuring of the family. It's not a destruction of the family. So I went and I got trained in mediation. I'm a certified mediator. I went and got trained in collaborative divorce, um, which are both alternative dispute resolution. And I do that. And I do um, negotiated settlements in litigated cases. And that, that's how I practice. It's with a different attitude. You know, younger, when we're young, we're more, well, at least I was, um, ambition has a way of, of um, I don't know, confusing your, your, your goals. It's just, it was a how to win, how to win mentality. That softened when I became a mom and went through my own divorce. And the need to win was um, replaced with the need to help and, and make things better. Well, it's interesting. I always tell my clients that nobody really wins a divorce. I think the no. public does have that mentality that you win. Mm -hmm. yes. Nobody wins. No. But, but that's how our system. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> so would you say that your experience getting a divorce was more influential in, in the change in attitude? No. Becoming a mother was more influential. Um, really? The divorce part just gave me the perspective of what it feels like to be on that end. And it gave me just that perspective. Um, but, but becoming a mother had m far more impact on my attitude of how it should be done. That's interesting. Can you explain that a little more? Um, I realized, I guess in hindsight, um, I realized the need to to keep um, to keep the bonds in place, even though a family is changing in nature and structure. Those bonds um, are very, very important to maintain for the stability and the security of a child, um, my children. And when I, I witnessed so many horrible custody battles, as I'm sure you have, yeah. that I, 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 I saw day to day firsthand what it does to children to see their children to see their parents battling and fighting and, and to set up that inner conflict of, of um, betrayal if they love both of them and I after I had my own kids I realized even more how important that is and um, wanted to help people work out their differences and restructure without killing each other and going broke yeah that's definitely unfortunately something that we see a lot of but it's hard for people to really understand that when they're in it. I mm -hmm. think sometimes, sometimes, not always, they can look back with hindsight and they can appreciate that maybe some of the things they fought over weren't really that important or they could have compromised earlier and were really driven by emotional decisions. Mm -hmm. But it's hard for people to see that at the time. 
So very hard. So if I can ask you, would, was your divorce fairly amicable or did you have a high conflict yes. divorce? No, I did not have a con- high conflict divorce. I would, I would never allow it to be a high conflict divorce. So what would you say to somebody, though, when they say, well, I don't want it to be a high-conflict divorce. I'm trying to get it done, but my spouse just won't. My spouse is the one who's making this high conflict. (laughs) Well, it depends on the role I'm playing. If I'm acting as a mediator, um, I can help that person. When I act as a mediator, I view my role as helping them hear each other not necessarily speak to each other. It's, it's a function of teaching people how to listen. And my, my biggest, one of my biggest lines to my, my mediating cases is you don't have to agree with what your spouse is saying, but you have to validate that they have that opinion and it's, that's their reality. Everybody has a different reality and we all act from that place of what our reality is. So when I mediate, you don't have to agree. You just have to acknowledge that that's your spouse's reality and that's the reality he or she sits in and acts from. And that seems to shift mindset um, in the mediation setting. And it allows people to, the shoulders go down and they breathe, oh, I don't have to agree. No, you don't have to agree. You just have to acknowledge that that's what they really believe to be true. And that seems to free up space um, for, for better communication. I think that's really great advice. I want to back up a little bit though. So you, you decided that you had to go back to work Mm -hmm. and there's so many things you could have done, right? You could have tried to get a corporate job that's Mm -hmm. maybe a little more predictable in terms of hours and paycheck. Mm -hmm. Or you could have pursued the nonprofit route. There's so many things you could have done. So what was your plan at that point? Was it just, I'm going to hang a shingle and we're just going to get this done? Well, the plan was always, I'm going to hang a shingle, but I had to go back. I realized that after 10 years, so much had changed that I had to go back and work for a firm for a few years. So I did that, um, got back up to speed and then said, okay, it's time again. But when, while I was working for the firms, um, I, I had the plan in motion. I was getting trained in mediation. I was getting trained in collaborative. Um, and I was working behind the scenes to, to brand and to, and to formulate what my strategy of what this firm was going to look like. Um, and then I, I was Valentine's Day, <laughs> 2000 and, oh gosh, I think it was 2009. I walked into the senior partner's office and they said, happy Valentine's day. I just want to let you know I'm quitting. And he looked at me and he said, you do realize that you are a single mother going through a divorce and you don't have another job and you're quitting. I said, "Uh uh-huh. He said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to open my own firm again. He said, just like that. I said, just like that. And a month later I was practicing in my own firm. Wow. That just makes me so mad. To have it be met with such negativity and mm-hmm. basically you can't do it. I mean, that was basically what he was saying is you can't both do it. Both times, yes, both firms. The first firm that I started, I was partners um, in a partnership and I got the same reaction. I said I was going to go out on my own. You'll never make it on your own. Watch me. <laughs> and it was a man that said that? It was a man. It was a man. And, and there's nothing, nothing that inspires me to succeed more than being told I can't do it. Yes. Yes. I love that about you. (laughs) Yeah. That's the surest way to get me to do something. (laughs) I agree. I agree a hundred percent. So I think it might be a little fuzzy on a minor detail. You, I thought that you left, you started working for somebody once you were getting divorced, but you went back to work before the divorce actually happened. Okay. In 2009, my ex-husband and I separated and I went back to work okay. and I went back to work for a firm and then was there for a little bit and then went to another firm and from that second firm started my own. So was it always your plan from the time you, you left your hiatus to, and went back to work? It was always your plan to eventually work towards opening your own business? Oh, from day one. Once at the point that I had retired, um, I had my own practice. It was very difficult to go back. Yeah. 
and work for someone else. But I really had no choice. It was the responsible thing to do. I needed to get myself back up to speed. And it was also very helpful to have that security as I was transforming into a single, you know, a single woman. Um, It was really helpful to have that, the, 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 the paycheck and knew that that was, um, that was security. So it was helpful. It served its purpose. Um, yeah. But then it was enough and it was time to do my thing. So what was it like to go back though, from, I guess, on an intellectual level to go back to practicing law again when you hadn't done it in so long? Did, did you have the muscle memory? Is it like riding a bike? It was so intimidating. <laughs> really? I was scared to death. It, I was so much more frightened then um, when I decided to start my own business and I took that, that great leap, um, going back to work, it was really scary. I was 10 years older. I hadn't done it in 10 years. Um, there was no momentum. There was no momentum. It was like, okay, you are that person again. Go. Um, and that, that was a really frightening experience. Can I ask you, what was it you were afraid of? Did you feel like maybe you didn't have the chops anymore? Yep. Totally lost my edge. Um, couldn't couldn't um, put in the same amount of time that I had as a, as a sing, you know, as a, you know, a, a woman without children um, that I wouldn't be able to, to practice. I, I, I do everything, you know, 110% at warp speed. And it was that struggle that every working woman feels. How, how do I parent my children 110% and be a lawyer 110%? The math didn't work. And it was the constant fear. We all go through this, sitting at the desk. You never feel like you're 100% at work, and you never feel like you're 100% with your kids. Some things always, you always feel inadequate. Um, at least I did. And that, that was a struggle. That was a daily struggle. I think that's a common complaint. That's a common challenge. And I'm absolutely not a man hater. So I just want to say that. Oh, me either. (laughs) I I wonder, do men grapple with this? Because if they do, I don't hear it. But I'm also not asking. Do you have an opinion about that? Um, I don't think um, men of my generation grapple with that. I am seeing um, with millennials and the generation above millennials now that the men are much more involved in the lives of their children um, and are looking for ways to balance, particularly in a divorce. First of all, they want you know as much time as mom has with them. And they are more mindful of balancing their work obligations with their parental responsibilities. That's what I'm finding. Do you think that's because they have a genuine desire to, to be more hands-on dads or because they feel more of a responsibility to, their, to the other parent to help? Or maybe it's both. I think it's both. I think it's both. If, you're, if, you're, if you have this genuine need to... Um, be, you know, intimately involved in your children's lives, just naturally it's, you're going to want to help the other spouse. When they yeah. go hand in hand, I think. Yeah. It's an interesting conversation. I, I definitely think you're right about that, that it seems to be generational. Mm-hmm. And I think the gap is getting smaller. Yeah. But I think probably in most households, not all, because I know that there's plenty of stay-at-home dads. I mean, we see situations where moms are paying alimony. Oh, yeah. And it's really a double standard because I don't think that we look at a mom paying alimony the same way as when a dad has to pay alimony. Absolutely. That's one of the hard, I don't know if you experience this, but that's one of the hardest things to explain to my female clients who are the bread earners. You, you have to pay spouses support. The attitude is, well, he's a, an able-bodied person who's choosing not to work. Why should I have to pay him to sit on the couch? And once you say, okay, let's flip roles. Let's pretend now that he's making the money and you've been home with the children. Would you feel the same way? 
and it's always met with uh <laughs> yeah i guess not yeah it's interesting it's sort of a i call it schizophrenic thinking it mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i mean those because so as women you know sometimes i'll speak for myself i will complain about those gender disparities and mm-hmm. the double standard which is normally not in women's favor but if you're going to complain about it it's got to go both ways so exactly. if you're going to exactly. choose right if you're going to choose to be in a relationship where mom is the breadwinner and dad's the one staying at home being mr mm-hmm. mom mm-hmm. you kind of you that's the reality that you're creating in that family right. yes network so yeah. it is kind of hard to wrap your brain around it it is and it's particularly hard in the situations where mom just became more successful in her career it wasn't that it wasn't that a a a decision was made in their marriage that dad was going to stay home and be the parent and mom was going to go out and earn it was that mom just exceeded his success in the workplace and either he lost his job or stopped working or there was a failed business but it wasn't wasn't a conscious agreed upon decision it was just life unfolding and one became more successful than the other and in those cases that's a that's a tough sell because yeah uh, yeah and I think it's it's hard for women too when you are surpassing your husband in terms of success. You know, I kind of use that in air quotes. We're mm-hmm. talking about money in this instance. Mm-hmm. I often ask the question, do we really want to be with men who don't make as much money as us? I don't know. I don't really have an answer. I don't know how you feel about it. I think there's something in my primal brain <laughs> that uh-huh. does have a problem with it, even though on the surface, yeah. I want to say no. I mean, why Why would I have a problem with that? But I think because we're all so programmed. Absolutely. That's a function of, of that is such ingrained gender roles that, that it, it, it just, it, it's a natural conclusion. But there's no reason to feel that way. We've just been taught that way yeah. <laughs> and raised that way. And that's the norm, the societal norm. But yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> something to think about. Just, you know, some light, uh, <laughs> maybe do some light reading later on this subject. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm always interested to hear people's opinions about that. I probably think about it a little too much. But let's get back to you and your career path. So you eventually went out on your own, and mm-hmm. it just felt like it was time. I was I was ready um, in terms of you know my knowledge and my experience and my confidence. I was ready to to do it again. And did you feel like you did get acclimated to practicing law again pretty quickly? Oh yeah, yeah. So and you did still I, have your chops. Oh, I did, but I didn't know that I did until I went and did it. Um, yeah, but by the time I was back six months, I really felt like I had hit my stride again. But those first six months were pretty rough. Yeah, well, they, a lot. <laughs> they, oh, yeah, I know. They they say you grow in outside of your comfort zone, though, right? Yes. But yes. your experience is interesting because we evolve, right? And mm-hmm. then we can kind of look back over 10 or 20 years and, and really see how we change incrementally. But mm-hmm. you your, your comparison was more stark because you had this break for 10 years. Did you feel like you saw any real differences that you can recall from what it was like practicing law before and then when you went back to it? Was there any? No. No. Really? It was exactly the same right down to the posters hanging on the walls in family court. I can't even believe that. I can remember my first trip back into Nassau family court walking in and going, oh my Lord, these are the same posters nothing. It was like a time warp. Time had just stood still. And I stepped out for 10 years and stepped back in and just picked right up. Isn't that incredible though? Because Mm -hmm. people have, people change, society changes, public's needs changes. So how can we still be doing everything exactly the same way that we always did? Systems don't change. Or, Or if they do, they change very, very slowly. Yes, very slowly. Well, this COVID experience is a really great example because so many offices and definitely the courts in New Jersey, I can't speak for New York, they were not equipped 
to just hit the ground running and deal with technology? No, no, but they, they have now. Um, and I think because of this experience, it's they're they're going to keep doing things online. Um, maybe not in all areas of law, but in matrimonial law, I, they are contemplating continuing conferences um, online because it's, it makes so much more sense. Yes. You know, we go to court for a conference that takes six minutes, but we're there for three hours waiting to be seen. It's such a waste of resources and time. It is such a disservice to the clients who yes. are, they end up paying you for three hours of time for a 20 minute conference with a judge. And people don't have money for this. Most people, they just don't have the money for that. So I do hope that, I hope all of the states follow suit. I hope that New Jersey does continue to do the conference, the video conferencing, because I do think that it's more efficient for everyone. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Was your office already taking advantage of technology or do you feel like you've kind of had to speed up a little bit with that too? Oh, I had to speed up. I had done the occasional Zoom conference for one reason or another, but um, but not not as a regular thing. And now I'm very comfortable with it. I'm doing consultations and mediations. I actually think I'm going to keep doing my mediations on Zoom because it's much easier when they're in different rooms and only seeing each other on a screen. I'm finding that the acrimony and the bickering is really less. That makes so sense. I just, yeah, I may just continue doing it. I'll see. That makes sense. So would you say that there were some good things that came out of the COVID experience? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, per- both personally and professionally. Um, personally, this is the first time in, I can't remember how many years I've had all three of my children under the same roof and they're captive. They can't, you know, they would all come home from college, but everybody would be out. I'd never see anybody. They're captive. <laughs> how old <laughs> are they? Stay home. Uh, they're all going to have their birthdays at the end of this month and the beginning of June. They'll be 25, 23, and 19. Wow. That's so funny all in the same month. Yeah. Yeah. So that must be nice to have them home. It's wonderful. Um, it's great. It's really, I'm really, I feel very, very lucky to have this time because I'll probably never have this again. You know, when you're in the house every single day with all of your children and nobody can leave. (laughs) They're all my captains. <laughs> well, it's made me realize how many distractions we really have. And and that's what they are. You know, before I think I used to see them as just being busy with something. But now I see them really more for what they are, distractions. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So and what uh, else what else would you say good came out of this? You said personally some things came good came out of it. I think, well, personally, it's my children. Professionally, I think that um, our, our system is going to change. I think that I feel, I'm very type A. And unless I was in my office from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day, it physically in the office, I didn't feel like I worked a full day. I Now I sit at my dining room table and I can knock out, you know, what would take me 12 hours sitting at my desk in, in two hours because it's, it's focused time. And I realize now that I don't have to physically be in my office 12 hours a day to consider myself productive. That's nice. That, that's, a, yeah. that's a nice, great form. It is. Uh, it reminds me of that saying, work smarter, not harder. Exactly. I never knew how to work smarter. It's just work harder. I'm all about work harder, work harder, work harder. The bar is always being raised. Yeah, I think in our culture, we've just learned that the person who's working the longest hours and working hard, whatever that means, that, I don't know, that that's noble somehow. Right. But I don't yeah. think it is because you're what you're really doing is taking time away from your family, taking time mm-hmm. away from other personal endeavors that I think contribute to your personal development. So Absolutely. I... I wish that our culture wasn't like that, so focused on being productive. I know people that work at corporations where they're doing business with people in other countries. I I have a friend who was doing some working on a project with a business in France, and she Mm -hmm. said that once their end of their day came, whether it was five or six, and you're already dealing with the time change, but once Mm -hmm. the end of the day came, that was it. They shut down. You did not continue to email them well into the night. 
No. They have a very different attitude about work and life. Yeah. It's a much different work ethic. We're the only country that, that works like we do. Um, I do a lot of traveling uh, with my kids and without my children, and I've experienced lots of different cultures. We are the only ones who work the way we do. Everybody else values, everybody else sees work as a means to an end. In the, in the United States, it's, it's, it is the end. It, you know, it, it is the be all and end all. Um, it's not like that in the rest of the world. It, there's a much more balance and a recognition that I have to do this to pay the bills, but this is not my life. My life is my children and my interests and my art and whatever it is. Yeah, I agree with you there, but it is hard to, I mean, we could have this conversation and I can promise I'm going to be better. I'm going to be more focused on personal things, but you get swept up in it and it, oh. it's still hard to turn it mm -hmm. off because everybody around you is doing it. And I think yeah. there's also this mentality that you're going to get left behind, that everybody else is working and if I don't want to get left behind, I better do it too. Oh, absolutely. It's, I mean, email, I, I don't know about you, but I, I check my email 90 times a day. It's like, if I don't answer the email 30 seconds after I get it, I feel like I failed. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. I agree with you. Live like this. Yeah. I agree with you a hundred percent. Well, hopefully we can make deliberate and mindful changes to just be more focused. I, I just read an article on Harvard Business Review on this very issue, which I will forward to you. Um, but yeah, I would, sometimes I want to smash my phone with a hammer. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I don't have to look at another email. I know. And I always have this mentality. I don't know if you do, but I always, in my head, I'm saying to myself, well, if I answer it right now, I just, you know, it's off my plate. Yeah. And, and I think in my brain that that's going to free up time but it never does. Well, all it does is make me endlessly accessible 24-7 to everybody. And that's, that's not making life easier. It's making life harder. It is. Yeah. And you're actually training your clients what to expect. So if you that's email, right. and I've learned this the hard way, if you mm -hmm. email on a weekend, they expect that you're going to be responsive on a weekend. If you email Absolutely. them 12 o'clock at night, then that's what they expect. And if you suddenly stop doing that because you realize you're getting sucked in, yeah. it's, they almost get upset because you've Not been almost. doing it all along. They get very upset. You can't stop in the middle. But I, I am my own worst enemy when it comes to that. It's, if I get an email comes in in the middle of the night and somebody's upset about something, I can't go back to sleep. It, it's, it's one question. You know what I mean? It's one question. I know that that poor person is laying there staring up at the ceiling, just waiting for the morning to come so I respond. It's my own fault. I will respond right there and then because I can't sleep because I know they can't sleep. <laughs> oh, you're so nice. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of like putting the oxygen mask on yourself first. And I teach my associates and our staff attorneys that it's nice that you want to help people and give so much of yourself, but you really do have to make time for yourself because if you don't, you just get burnout. Yes. That's very true. That's a great analogy. You really, and I do, you know, even before COVID, I do make efforts. Um, sometimes I succeed and sometimes I don't, but I make efforts to, to make time in my life for other things, you know, exercise, I paint, travel. So, you know, I, I, I do try to keep balance. You paint. That's really nice. I see you have something on the wall there. Did you paint that? Or oh, is that something no, I didn't. My teacher painted that. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, she's my teacher, um, but that's not my work. How did you get into painting? How long have you been doing that? <laughs> when I turned 40, I, I became very aware of that. I was stuck in a comfort zone. I was like oh, doing the same thing every day. So when I turned 40, I said, I'm going to go and take lessons in something I am absolutely certain I cannot do. Never picked up a paintbrush, never picked up a crayon, just have never no artistic ability. So I decided to take painting lessons. And I went and I, I took a year's worth of lessons and it turns out I have some hidden talent. <laughs> I can paint. And wow. then I yeah, and then I started um, traveling to paint with painting groups. So I've been to Italy and Africa and all sorts of wonderful places to paint That's outside. It's called plein air painting. And I love it. That and is I awesome. Yeah, I love that. 
<laughs> have you, you sold know, any? No, I give it all away. I don't know why. I After I finish a painting, I don't want it anymore. I don't want to have it. So I've given them all away. That is interesting. I bet a therapist could have fun with that. I, oh, absolutely. <laughs> There's definitely some deep-seated reason why I do that. Well, maybe <laughs> what serves you is the actual process, not the result. It is. It is. And then I look at the result and I go, oh, that's nice. You want this? <laughs> that's interesting. I wonder if you do the same thing with your business. When a case is done, are you like, bye, like push them out of the nest? <laughs> um. I would say that it's a pretty firm closure for me when a case is done. Like, you know, that part of my brain is the, the, the imaginary file cabinet, a door shut, ready to move on to the next. You feel like your work is done here and yep. now it's mm -hmm. time to help some other people. Time to help somebody else. Yes. So let me understand better what your firm is because it sounds like you don't do traditional litigation at all in your firm. Is that right? Um, I don't, I will take, I don't try cases. Um, I will take a traditional case, um, meaning one that's, you know, already started with a summons or needs to be started, uh, but it is always with immediately with an eye towards settlement. And if I do not, I sell 99% of my cases. And if I don't, I have um, trial counsel in my office, in my suite, she's a, a counsel to my firm, and she will come on and try the case. But I made a decision when I started this second firm that I am really devoted to the concept of these cases do not need to be tried. They, 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 I do everything in my power to keep people out of the courthouse. It's just so not necessary. It's the wrong forum for the issue. We shouldn't be deciding divorces in, in a legal system, which is very transactional in nature. Divorce is not yeah. a transaction. I agree 100%. So when you started ADR Law, did you was that something you started immediately when you established your new firm or did yes. it evolve? Okay. So you um, knew I want to focus on settlement and yes. mediation. Yes, I hired a marketing firm, I did branding, I did the I had a vision. Um and I I I definitely knew where I was going with this and that, that's now what I do. I do not try cases. Well, let and, me ask and I you, tell people that when they okay. come to see me. If you're looking for the pit bull, if you're looking for the trial, if you're in the wrong office. I am here to help you restructure your family in the least emotionally damaging and financially damaging way. That's that's my goal. And if our goals are not aligned, I can give you the name of, you know, a million other attorneys who will, who will go another direction. But that's not how I practice. I love that. So you're not just taking anything that walks in the door because a lot of people do that. And mm -hmm. then it's the worst thing ever is when you end up with a client who really just isn't a good fit for what you want to do. And, and I feel the same way. I don't like, I don't like being involved in a super high conflict divorce because I think that is all about emotion. It's really not about any of the legal issues because we, we see all the same legal issues all the time, right? There's, right. There's right. no novel legal issue. No. They don't come around very often, but everybody yeah. thinks that there's something unique about their case. Yes. They're the only ones that has had the issue. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, that's a, it, this is not rocket science. Divorce is, we know the laws. We know every, every case has the same facts, just different, pe different people associated with the facts. Um, I think the system itself breeds that like throws like throwing gasoline on the fire um and that you know you're going through the same five stages of grief in a divorce that you do when somebody dies and when somebody dies no one says to you okay you shed your last tear you're done okay time to clean out the closet and get rid of all their clothes in a divorce you say okay you're done crying now you have to you know respond to discovery demands you have to show up for this conference that's not how grief works. Grief does not happen on a schedule. Grief happens different for everybody. And that's why you, you try and it's like slamming the square peg into the round hole. You yeah. can't do that. This is yeah. a grieving process, not a commercial transaction. I agree. I love that approach. But the problem that I find sometimes is even if you have that sort of general approach, what if your adversary doesn't? What if you've got an adversary who's sending the nasty letters and, mm -hmm. you know, that whole routine? It happens. What do you do? It happens. Well, it, I will turn down a case if I know that there is a particularly litigious adversary on the other side. 
thank you, but no. Thank Give you. us names. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> thank you, no, thank you. Um, and at this point, uh, you know, after 30 years, um, people know my adversaries know what I'm about. It's a very, I don't know what it's like in New Jersey, New York. The matrimonial community is very small. Everybody yeah. knows everybody. Um, and I am, my reputation is somebody who works it out. And that's, that's my number one goal. Um, and, but every now and then, you know, it happens and I do the best I can to settle it. In, in the years that I've had this firm, I've only had two cases to go to trial. And that's, you know, over the course of 10 years, that's a lot. So every now and then one slips through and I can't, I just can't make it happen. So why do you not personally do the trials? Oh, no, because it, it first of all, it, because of my personality type, it consumes me. I am a sole practitioner. Everything shuts down for a trial. I don't have the ability, the wherewithal to do that. Um, I don't want that stress in my life anymore. And it's not, if I were to try cases, it's not being true to my, my mission, which is to resolve these cases and help families restructure peacefully. I can't say that that's what I'm all about. And then, oh, by the way, I can't do mediation next week because I'm on trial. That, that, yeah. That's just hypocritical and inconsistent. Yeah. I love that you're very honest and forthcoming about that. And I really love that you know who you are, you know what you want to do, and you're establishing boundaries. Yes. Yeah. At this point in my life, it, it, yeah, I have a very clear vision of who I am and how I, how I want to practice. And I don't, I don't have to play by those rules. I'm successful in my own right and in my own mind. I don't need to be practicing the way other people are practicing to, to have my own inner definition of success. I like that you're doing your own thing too, because there's so many firms that I think they just do things because this is how we've always done it. Yes. Right? Yes. And yeah. our society is changing. All you have to do is look at social media. Mm -hmm. as, as one example, a huge example. I think people don't want the big, long, drawn out, ridiculously expensive divorce, which I think has sort Nobody of become wants the norm. That. Nobody you know, with with the exceptions of people who really, really do want their pound of flesh or, or revenge, um, accepting those people, because I really do think that they're on the out, they're the outliers. They're on you know one end of the spectrum. Nobody starts a divorce saying, gee, I want to destroy myself emotionally. I want to damage my kids forever. And I want to spend every dime I have doing it. Nobody starts out that way. It just, it's something that happens to you. Yeah. I think people don't realize what's actually happening. No, they never do. It's they like there's a fire behind them, destroying yeah. everything behind them right. and they can't see it. Yes. I'm really big on um, when I'm when I'm handing a, a traditional case that I'm trying to settle. I'm very big on explaining to a client when they say, "Okay, we went. Well, I want to do this and this." I don't just say yes or no. I say, "Well, let's look at what's let's it's like a chess game. Let's look at what's going to happen when we do this. What's going to be the consequence? What's going to be the other side's reaction to that action?" And when you do that, and you take the time to look at what's behind the action, what's going to happen after you do it, people kind of, you know, come around for the most part and say, oh, yeah, maybe that's not such a good idea. It feels yeah. good emotionally, feels great to lash out, but hmm, it's going to cost how much? And what are they going to do in retaliation? And then we have to do what? Maybe it's not such a good idea. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like eating a cupcake. You really want the cupcake. <laughs> but if you're trying to lose weight, it might not be the best thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what's your vision for your firm? Um, my vision for my firm is I would love very, very much to be doing solely mediation and collaborative. I would like to build a team uh, for the collaborative end of it. And um, then I would like to turn over the firm to that team and retire. <laughs> <laughs> is there a, uh, a plan in place, like 10-year plan, a one-year plan? I, <laughs> um, I think there's a 10-year plan in place. Um, it, it's, not, it's not anything that's going to be um, 
an all or nothing. I, I think it's, I will always have my, my hand in it. I'd like to be the rainmaker with the associates running the day to day and doing the work because I love, um, I love networking. I love generating the business. I love running the business. And, um, but I teach, I'm an adjunct professor at Hofstra and I'm really enjoying that. I'd like to do some more teaching. I'd like to do a lot more of traveling and painting. <laughs> I'd like to write a book. So there's other things that, you know, are on the horizon, but I don't think I'll ever completely stop practicing. What would the book be about? Oh, my experiences. Um, both professionally and personally, my experiences with and my opinion of how, why the system needs to change and my ideas for how it should change. I, I really do believe that it's, it's just the wrong system for, for the issue. It really is. I've seen a, a judge say from the bench to people, he didn't say it in the very most respectful way, but I, but I think the message was the same. He said, you guys don't need court a court system you guys need a counselor mm -hmm. and he yeah. really was right he you know mm -hmm. he didn't say it in the nicest way but i think it was true yeah i think the problem is it's like what you said you know trying to put a round peg into a square hole or mm -hmm. vice versa um i think we get so caught up in the problems that people are having in the court system mm -hmm. but you're arguing about things that aren't legal problems but we're, exactly. we're trying to put a legal band-aid on it. Exactly. It's not, a, the system's not equipped. The three issues in every divorce are the emotional issues, the financial issues, and the legal issues, right? Okay. The court has no ability to handle the psychological processes that are going on and really has very little ability to do a, a tailored um, solution for, for people financially. It's very cookie cutter. Split it in half and go away. That's, that's not yeah. necessary. That's why I love collaborative divorce because it's a team and it's, everybody's got an attorney, but the attorneys are teammates. They're not adversaries. There's a psychologist that acts in, as a high conflict resolution and a coach and a um, child specialist. Having that psychologist in the room when things get heated is amazing. I will tell you a quick story about my first collaborative case. Please do. My client, um, became very emotional and got up on my glass top conference table in the middle of, 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 a, of, a, of a meeting. Um, it was myself, the other attorney, the psychologist, and the um, certified divorce financial analyst. Those are the team members on the collaborative. And I was a seasoned practitioner at this point, but I did not, I turned white. I did not know how to handle this. That psychologist got up, got her off the table, took her into another room, calmed her down, brought her back in, and we picked right up where we left off. If that That's, has been a litigated case, <laughs> you know, we were looking at three, four years. Oh, yeah. That, well, that's not uh, something you see every day. So you probably did right. not encounter that problem before, <laughs> which is why you weren't sure what to do. But yes. that's a psychological issue. Exactly. And it should be every divorce should have a psychologist as a consultant, not in a therapeutic fashion, as a, conf as a high conflict resolution expert. That's what they're trained to do. And it is, uh, it's just, it changes, it's a game changer. It makes all the difference. And then having the, I don't, do you work do with certified? Money? Sorry, go ahead. It's okay. Do you work with the, um, I know it's becoming a big thing in New York. I don't know if it is in New Jersey, the certified divorce financial analyst. I haven't, but I've, I know some financial advisors who have been telling me about this certification. It's amazing. It, it cuts through. They, first of all, they come up with these amazing out-of-the-box ideas that make the pie bigger, whether it's with tax consequences or, or whatever. But they, it, it, we know a lot. We've been doing it for a long time. We know about taxes. We know a lot, right? Yeah. There's so much we don't know. And yes. just all these clever ways to come up with more money and you know, make the pie bigger. Well, what, if, what do you say to the people, though, that will say, how can, I, how can we afford to pay all these people to be involved? Oh, it's so much cheaper. It is so much. On average, a collaborative case is a third of the time and a third of the cost because the time, 
you've got the right professional dealing with the appropriate issue as opposed to the judge dealing with who can't deal with psychological issues. So, you know, it just goes on and on and on mm -hmm. and people fight more and more and more. It gets done. Everything gets resolved very quickly when you have the right professional. And with the financial advisor there, you're cutting through tax problems, you're cutting through, um, you know, retirement issues. It, everything gets done simultaneously. All those experts work independently and as a team. And everything just gets done. There's no wasted time. There's no motion practice. There's no sitting in the courtroom for three hours waiting for a 10-minute conference where nothing gets accomplished. Something gets accomplished at every single, every meeting has a really tight agenda. It's followed. You have homework. You complete your homework. We come back for another meeting. You break off into groups with a psychologist to deal with your parenting issues. You break off in a group with the financial analyst to deal with support issues and equitable distribution issues. And you're done. Why doesn't the court function more like this? Because it's not, think about it. The system, the legal system was created way back when for transactions, for property transactions for the most part. And when people couldn't agree over who owed what piece of land or who owed somebody money, you'd take it to court. That's what the system was invented for. And it just evolved through time to deal with all conflict. Shouldn't be there. Don't you think divorce would be more efficient, though? Because the people that come to you for collaborative divorce, they'll do collaborative divorce. But what yeah. about all the people that don't elect to do collaborative divorce? They're stuck with the traditional model, and that's right. really what's not working. So exactly. I've often wondered to myself, why are we still following this old periodic scheduling of court appearance, which are basically like, I can sum them up. So how are things going? What is, is anything resolved? Is there any discovery right. issues? And, right. and then, okay, bye, come back in you know, a month and well, let's have the same conversation. It's the perpetual game of kick the can down the road, right? Yes, yes. yes because like you said, it's always been done that way. So that's how it's done. I do see... When I, when I made the decision to go back to practicing the second time, I, I gave some serious thought to, okay, what if I were to do something um, in some capacity to change the system? Because so, I see it as two choices. You work to change the system or you work to avoid the system. And I, I did a little bit of, you know, poking around to see, well, what would that entail? And, you know, maybe I should get into politics. Maybe I should... And I decided that that wasn't for me and that I was just going to devote myself to going around the system and just avoiding it. Um, but I do have ideas on how it can change and it has to change. But it, it's, I don't know, New York is getting a little more um, involved, a little more accepting of mediation. We now have manda mandatory mediation programs in, I live on Long Island and Nassau in Suffolk County. So it, it's finally starting to get recognition as a viable alternative. So I guess that's, that's hopeful. That's hope for the future. What about being on a committee to completely just restructure the process? I, I or are people just it. resistant to that? People are so resistant. And you know who the people who are most resistant to change? The attorneys themselves. Hmm, I Think wonder why it. that is. Do you have any oh, theories? Oh, I know exactly why that is. Is it money? The traditional litigated case is very lucrative. Okay, mediation is not, collaborative divorce is not because it's efficient and it's done and over. People who have been making a fortune litigating cases aren't going to keep that up. They're kind of like one trick monkeys. It's like, yeah. but this is what I know how to do. And this has provided a very good living for me. And I don't want to figure out how to do mm -hmm. something different and still make money. The training for the, not so much the mediation, the collaborative training. I felt as though somebody took my brains out of my skull, scrambled them, and put them back in. Everything I learned was complete antithesis of what we're taught in law school. It's a completely different dynamic from the from the you know traditional uh, litigation dynamic. It, it, it couldn't be more opposite. Nobody. There are very few people who want to. It was very very long time to get trained, and I have to go through ongoing training every year to keep up the skills. So it's a it's a big, big commitment. And people yeah. who are one-trick ponies don't want to do that. This, why, change, yeah. why fix what's not broken in their mind? This works fine. Well, it is broken. Life, 
right. It is broken. But there are a lot of attorneys out there that don't see it that way and don't necessarily want it to change um, because it is so lucrative and they're supporting their families that way. Yeah, that's unfortunate. But my response to them would be, there's always going to be a way to make money, make a living, right. you know. Exactly. Um, you might just have to do more volume if you get right. the people done faster then exactly. you did something good for them. That's something yeah. to brag about. Look how fast I got these people done and they were happy yeah. and they were satisfied in the end. Yeah. So That's how I feel. It's That's kind exactly of how I feel. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of antiquated I, I, thinking. I'd much rather be a part of something positive um, than something that makes me more money. I just that that doesn't that's never been my motivating. Well, don't course. give up. Oh, I'll never <laughs> give up. <laughs> you can change the system and it happens slowly, but it does. It happens slowly. And like I said, I'm seeing I'm seeing some signs of hope with mediation. So that's good. I'm glad to hear that. It sounds like you're doing a good service for people that really need it. And we I'm need sorry. people like you. <laughs> So I end each interview with a series of questions. Um, they used to always be the same, but I'm kind of mixing them up a little bit. So okay. what would you say is the best advice that you've ever gotten? Business or life advice? Oh, wow. What's the best advice I've ever gotten? Um, not to let fear stop me. I, I, I think the biggest regret... In, for me in my life, you know, on, the, on, the, on the, the last day of life would be that I didn't take a chance to do something because fear stops me. Um, it's how I raise my kids. Don't let fear be the reason you don't do something. Um, so I, I think that that's, my mom always instilled that in me. Don't let, don't let fear stop you. That's the last thing that should stop you. Yeah. There's always going to be fear, right? Yes. So if you let that, you'll never go anywhere. You'll just be stuck in place. Yeah. So I, you know, I do. When I quit my job, it was, it was really a foolish thing to do. Just quit my job without having another one as a single mother with three kids going through a divorce that I quit. But it works out. You know, you have to have confidence in your, I'm not the type of person that analyzes jumping off the cliff. I jump off the cliff with the confidence of knowing that when I land, I'm going to know what to do to figure it out. And that's pretty much how I lead my life. Faith in yourself and your abilities. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because they always say that when you're on your deathbed, you don't regret things you did. You regret the things you didn't do. Right. Exactly. Not to get all morbid on you. I know. But, <laughs> but um, I have a coach who always says- Not morbid. Philosophical. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> philosophical. I like that much better. I have a coach who always says, we all die in the end. That's it. <laughs> We're all yep. going to the same place. We sure as hell are. <laughs> okay, so if you won a hundred million dollars, so you know, money's no object, you don't have to mm -hmm. consider money anymore. What mm -hmm. would you do? Would you still would be doing the schools. same thing? No, I'd build schools for girls in um, Africa in the Middle East. That's I love always that. been a on the bucket list, something that I've wanted to do. Why is that important to you? Because I think that educating girls um, is the key to, um, not only their success, but the success of the society as a whole. When you educate women, you pull up the entire society. And I think that the, uh, there are a lot of places in the world that don't do that. And many of their systemic problems, um, come from the fact that the females are not educated. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful cause. Are there little things that we can do now to further that? Um, yes, there are little things that we can do now. You mean uh, you and I uh, as people, what can we do? Yeah, I'm always wondering um, how I can do that. I mean, I'm not Oprah. I can't build a school. Right, yeah. But what can uh, I well, do? Well, there's always donations. Um, there's different organizations of um, women who, who make, um, make products and use the proceeds to educate girls. So you can buy those products. Um, there's a whole bunch of websites that do that. Um, I happen to know of ones uh, that exist in Africa, and those are the ones that I'll support. And that, that's one way that women will raise money to educate girls. That's, so that's wonderful. That's what it can do. 
So I hope you do get the hundred million so you can do that. Me too, baby. <laughs> if you were writing life's instruction manual, what's well, at least one rule you would have in it? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, what's one rule I would have in it? Um, never doubt. Never doubt your own ability. Just you want something, go for it. You're capable of anything. We all are innately capable of the goals that we set for ourselves. And the only thing that we that holds us back is, is our own fear and lack of confidence. We have to get out of our own way. Yes. Get the hell out of your own way. <laughs> yeah. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Oh, okay. I would tell my 20-year-old self not to listen to them. And by them, I mean... Um, not just men, the older colleagues, all the people who told me, you can't, you can't, you can't. Um, just don't listen. That's excellent I listened, advice. I listened and, and I let it scare me. And I, I still made the choices anyway, but I think it would have been a much less fearful experience had I not had those little stupid voices nagging at me in my head while I was doing it. And there are a lot of people that don't do it because of those voices. Yeah, I think that's true. And I don't think those voices ever really go away. I think you just kind of learn to push yep. them aside. Ignore them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you've had plenty of male voices telling you in the past, <laughs> you can't yeah. do that. You can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> I can remember my first partner, the first time I went out on my own, he said to me, you are never going to get a single client. That's so ridiculous. I know, I know. And that's what I said. That's so ridiculous. Like not yeah. one? Not, not one? Like, you're never going to get a single client. Okay. Don't Watch you think me. that says more about them though? Yes. Yeah. It, it says a lot about the generation. It says a lot about, you know, them as people. There's a lot of factors. Yeah. Well, anyway, I don't want to dwell on that. You have built a, a wonderful, thriving business on helping people in divorce, which not everybody ha is doing. And I really applaud you for that. Thank you for sharing so much of your personal background too. Oh, thank you. It was such a pleasure. It was very nice to meet I you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Well, so before we go though, let us know how people can find you if they're interested in talking to you more or retaining you. Okay. Um, my website is adrlawny.com. My email is kmc at adrlawny.com. And the, I'm located on Long Island, Nassau County, Garden City. And my phone number is 516-308-2922. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.